Section 5 of Constructive Conscious Control of the Individual by F. Matthias Alexander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 1. Continued. Consideration of the mechanism of the human psychophysical organism in relation to the activities called learning and learning to do. The foregoing will serve to indicate that in the sphere of learning something or learning to do something, as indeed in connection with all psychophysical acts, there is an important problem to be solved if we are to progress to that standard of psychophysical functioning and use which will enable us to meet satisfactorily the ever-increasing demands of an advancing civilization. Since, as we have seen, the standard of functioning in the performance of any psychophysical act depends upon the conception which influences the direction and control of the mechanisms involved, it is most essential to give consideration to this all-important matter of conception, in connection with the understanding of what we wish to learn or learn to do, and also in connection with that psychophysical activity by means of which we are enabled to arrive at our conceptions concerned with learning and learning to do. We will therefore go on to consider the mechanisms of the psychophysical organism in relation to the activity called learning something. First, for every form of psychophysical activity there must be a stimulus. In considering the response to this stimulus, I would remind my readers that I do not separate mental and physical operations, manifestations, in my conception of the manner, means whereby, of the functioning of the human organism. For how can we prove that the response to any stimulus is wholly physical or wholly mental? On the one hand, in what would ordinarily be considered purely physical spheres, the performance of physical acts, the standard of functioning depends, one, upon the degree of correctness of the conception of the act to be performed, and, two, upon the degree of coordinated employment of the guiding and controlling orders or directions, and of the mechanisms involved in carrying out the activities essential to the correct means whereby the act can be performed. On the other hand, in what would ordinarily be considered purely mental spheres, the standard of functioning depends, one, upon the degree of reliability of the sensory guidance and direction in the use of the mechanisms involved in conveying the stimuli primarily responsible for the psychophysical processes concerned with conception, and, two, upon the standard of coordination reached in the use of the whole organism. If the highest standard of the so-called physical functioning is to be reached, there must be coordinated employments of the muscular system through coordinated guidance, direction and control by processes, so-called mental, involving action and reaction in psychophysical unity and an adequate standard at all times of the vital functioning of the organism. In the same way, as I am prepared to demonstrate later, if the highest standard of the so-called mental functioning is to be reached, there must be coordinated employment of those processes which are involved in the coordinated use of the so-called physical self, involving action and reaction in psychophysical unity, and an adequate standard at all times of the vital functioning of the organism. Footnote. We are all aware, for instance, that a sluggish liver does not make for the best use of the mental powers 
and we know of people who, through bad habits of overindulgence, have reached a stage of liver or kidney disorder when their reasoning processes have become seriously impaired and those of remembering practically ruined. If the vital functioning of the physical mechanisms and organs is for any reasons inadequate, the organism as a whole becomes gradually more or less poisoned, with resulting gradual interference with the processes of remembering. And a footnote. It is clear, therefore, that no human activity can be said to be wholly physical or wholly mental, but that all human activity, in whatever sphere, is psychophysical activity. The standard of individual functioning, both mental and physical, so-called, being determined by the standard of coordinated use of the organism in general, the standard of this coordinated use being determined in its turn by the standard of coordinated employment of the psychophysical processes concerned. Now, psychophysical activity is simply the response to some stimulus or stimuli received through the channel of the senses, of hearing, for instance, of sight, touch, feeling, etc., and the nature of the resulting conception and of the response, or psychophysical reaction, will be determined by the standard of psychophysical functioning present. It then follows that the process of conception, like all other forms of psychophysical activity, is a process the course of which is determined by our psychophysical condition at the time when the particular stimulus or stimuli is received. We all know that a man's conception of his present or future financial or other condition in life is quite different when he is, as we say, in a good and happy frame of mind, from what it is when he has a grouch. Again, the conception as to the outcome of a disaster or piece of good fortune in life will be quite different in the case of a man in enjoyment of good health from that of a man weakened by bad health. Footnote. The latter may usually be classed as a pessimist and the former as an optimist. And a footnote. Influence of sensory appreciation upon conception in all psychophysical activity. This dependence of the process of conception upon the general psychophysical condition is a factor of paramount importance. For if, as we contend, all so-called mental processes are mainly the result of sensory experiences in psychophysical action and reaction, it will be obvious that in our conception of how to employ the different parts of the mechanism in the acts of everyday life, we are influenced chiefly by sensory processes, feeling. Thus we may receive a stimulus through something we hear, something we touch, or through some other outside agency. In every case, the nature of our response, whether it be an actual movement, an emotion, or an opinion, will depend upon the associated activity in action and reaction of the processes concerned with conception and with the sensory and other mechanisms responsible for the quote-unquote feeling which we experience. This associated activity is referred to throughout my work as sensory appreciation. Sensory appreciation. This sensory appreciation is the factor upon which the baby, like the animal, depends for guidance in his first subconscious attempts to use the different parts of the mechanism. The success of these attempts 
depending upon the degree of reliability of the child's sensory appreciation. An answer that wherever we find defects, peculiarities, etc., in children at a very early age, even in their first attempts at crawling, standing, walking, etc., these defects are present because the instinctive processes of such children are unreliable. It is my purpose throughout this book to attempt to prove the truth of this contention, which is based on the results of a teaching experience of very many years. Also to show that we must be prepared, in cases where the instinctive processes are unreliable, to restore the sensory appreciation to that standard of reliability upon which the adequacy of the functioning of all psychophysical processes depends. A comprehensive understanding of sensory appreciation, of its enormous influence for good and evil in the development of the creature, and of its future bearing upon the progress of mankind, is therefore of the greatest importance to all, but especially to those interested in education, both in the sense of education in our schools and in the broadest sense of the word. Sensory appreciation, from our point of view, has a much wider significance than is generally attributed to it. But it will be sufficient at this point to state that, taken even in the most limited sense, it includes all sensory experiences which are conveyed through the channels of sight, hearing, touch, feeling, equilibrium, movement, etc., and which are responsible for psychophysical action and reaction throughout the organism. If we raise an arm, move a leg, or if we make any other movements of the body or limbs, we are guided chiefly by our sensory appreciation, or, as most people would put it, by our sense of feeling. This applies to the testing of the texture of a piece of cloth between our fingers, or to the gauging of size, weight, or distance, etc. In fact, to the employment of the physical mechanisms in the processes of hearing, seeing, walking, talking, and in all the other activities of life. The human and the inanimate machine compare it and contrast it. The function of sensory appreciation will be clear to us if we stop for a moment and consider the human organism as an animate machine, and compare its mechanical processes with those of an inanimate machine. The reliability of both machines is dependent upon the standard of reliability of their controlling, propelling, motor and other mechanisms, the controlling factor taking first place as causing the other mechanical factors to work coordinately and to give the best results in practical use. But the all-important difference from our standpoint between the animate and the inanimate machine lies in the quality and function of their respective controlling mechanisms. In the inanimate machine, the controlling mechanism is limited by the fixed nature of its own makeup, and by certain fixed conditions in the other mechanisms without which it cannot operate. In the animate machine, or human psychophysical organism, the controlling mechanism is a wonderful psychophysical process by means of which an almost unlimited use of the different units which make up the whole may be brought about, so that at one moment a correct use and at another an incorrect use may be commanded. This psychophysical process is that essential factor in satisfactory human development which we call sensory appreciation. When functioning adequately, this sensory appreciation has a wide field of operation, 
and our ability to reach the maximum of our potentialities depends upon the standard of its reliability. This being so, it will be obvious to the most casual observer that if we are to continue to develop satisfactorily our sensory appreciation of the working of the mechanisms concerned with the movements of our bodies and limbs in the activities of life must be reliable. Unreliable sensory appreciation a universal defect. Unfortunately, we can prove by practical demonstration upon any person, adult or child, that the sensory appreciation of the people of our time is more or less unreliable, and in the great majority of cases positively delusive. Readers of Man's Supreme Inheritance will probably be convinced on this point without demonstration. If they are not, and will take the trouble, with the help of some friend, to make tests on themselves in the light of the facts given, they will assuredly be convinced. Take the case of a person who persists in putting his head back whenever he makes an attempt to put his shoulders back. Ask him to put his head forward and keep his shoulders still, and it will be found that, as a rule, even though he may put his head forward as asked, he moves his shoulders also. Ask him to put his head forward whilst the teacher holds his shoulders still, and the pupil, as a rule, will put his head back instead of forward. In practically every instance, be the pupil adult or child, the attempt to carry out this simple request will be unsatisfactory, owing to the pupil's harmful interference with the general adjustment and use of the organism and limbs due to unreliable sensory appreciation. Similarly, if a pupil is asked to turn his toes out, it is my experience that instead of taking the weight of his body on his heels in order to lift the front part of the feet to turn them out, he will, as a rule, throw the weight onto the balls of the feet and still attempt to lift the front part, or else he will move his heels in towards one another instead of turning out the toes. Point out one or other of these errors to the pupil, and he, as if aware of the delusive sensory appreciation which is responsible for these errors, at once looks down at his feet in order to try to see how to move them correctly. Again, there are very few persons who, when asked to do such a simple thing as open the mouth, will not throw the head back with the idea, as it were, of lifting the upper jaw away from the lower. This serves to show that they have not given any consideration to the psychophysical use of the muscular and other mechanisms concerned with this act. If they had, they would have realized that there are subconscious processes continually operative which keep the mouth closed. And consequently, the first thing to do is to cause these processes to be inoperative, and so to bring about such relaxation of the muscular tension involved as would allow the jaw to drop. It does, in fact, commonly drop in the case of that type of idiot who is most often open-mouthed. Whilst it is common knowledge that if a boxer receives a blow on the head heavy enough to throw out the controlling gear, his jaw drops of itself and frequently remains dropped for a considerable time. When I ask a pupil to allow me to move his lower jaw away from the upper, he usually increases instinctively the tension that keeps the lower jaw in place. As I have frequently pointed out, 
An enormous aggregate waste of energy is involved in these constant and irrational tensions. Many who are brought for the first time face to face with the fact that the sensory appreciation of most of the people of our time is more or less unreliable become unusually disturbed, especially when they realize that this fundamental factor in human activity has been practically ignored by our experts and leaders in educational and other spheres in their attempts to effect reforms in the civilizing plan. Footnote. This is indeed a fearful fact to ask the ordinary human being to face. And when, in my professional sphere, I have been forced to impress it upon my pupils, I have read in their faces the different ideas, opinions and feelings evoked by my statement. Very often it has been evident that they have looked upon me almost as an enemy. For instance, I was recently discussing the point with a professional friend, who at once denied that our sensory appreciation was unreliable, and asked, why should nature permit us to go wrong in such an essential? I agreed to answer this, if he, on his part, would first explain to me why nature should prevent us from going wrong, seeing that in the process of the creature's development in civilization, even the simplest fundamentals of nature have been ignored. It was clear to me that my original statement had been a shock to my friend, and that his question was more of an emotional reaction to this shock than the outcome of any process of reasoning, for he admitted later that until I had brought the matter up to him, he had never given thought to this question of unreliable sensory appreciation, and yet had disagreed with one who, as he knew, had not only been considering this subject for more than thirty years, but for more than twenty-five of these, had been professionally engaged in demonstrating practically to his pupils the fact of their unreliable sensory appreciation. And a footnote. The truth is, we have not given sufficient consideration to this essential matter. We have merely acted on the presumption, in the usual subconscious way, that if we have a potentiality such as sensory appreciation, feeling, it must as a matter of course be reliable. Consideration of three stages of man's development in relation to deterioration of sensory appreciation. I will now endeavor to put before the reader certain facts concerning stages in the evolution of the human creature, when psychophysical conditions became present which made for the gradual deterioration of sensory appreciation, indicating possible causes of this deterioration in our sense of feeling and in all our other senses. Footnote. The factors which made for the establishment of reliable sensory appreciation and for a continuously improving standard in this connection have been indicated in man's supreme inheritance. The matter concerned with the technique of plowing may suggest the kind of human experiences responsible for that early interference with the standard of functioning and use of the psychophysical mechanisms, which lowers the standard of reliability of sensory appreciation. See Man's Supreme Inheritance, Chapter Conscious Guidance and Control in Practice. End of footnote. I shall confine this consideration of man's development to three stages. 1. 
the stage when he was guided chiefly by sensory appreciation. Two, the stage when he was developing the ability to inhibit in specific spheres and was still, as we say, physically fit. Three, the stage when he had still further developed the inhibitory power in specific spheres, but had recognized a lower standard of physical fitness which called for a remedy. Stage 1. Uncivilized stage. Standard of sensory appreciation reliable and satisfactory conditions maintained. We are all aware of the higher standard of sensory appreciation associated with all the sensory experiences involved in the general psychophysical activities essential to a healthy existence in the uncivilized as compared with the civilized state. In the stage we are considering, the satisfactory condition of the savage creature was maintained by the constant use of the mechanisms in the limited spheres of activity concerned with procuring food, drink and shelter, and with preservation of life from human and other enemies. Under such conditions, and at this stage of evolution, subconscious Gaiden satisfactorily met his immediate needs. He was unaware, that is, of the means whereby he employed his mechanisms in the simplest of everyday activities, and this unawareness did not matter at this stage. The reason for this is not far to seek. It is that at this early period, the standard of coordination and of the accompanying sensory appreciation in both sexes was comparatively high, and the needs of uncivilized existence did not call for the continual adaptation to rapid changes which civilized life demands. In fact, the physical coordination and development of the savage, like that of the animal which he encountered daily, had reached at that period a fine state of excellence. For if we are justified in believing that the two-footed upright creature, inherited from its predecessor on four feet, a well-developed and healthy organism, and surely there can be little doubt upon this point, we may assume that it reached the human stage in a condition of health which may be described as relatively high. Footnote. This does not exclude the possibility of the creatures experiencing occasional aches and pains, or even of suffering from specific diseases, but barring such specific troubles, the usual level was a normal one. It is significant in this connection that primitive man always thinks of disease after the analogy of wounds from arrows, stone bruises, etc., that is, as coming in specifically from without, and the technique of the medicine man is to drive out the foreign substances that have come in. If he sweats the patient, for instance, it is to expel some foreign substance. And a footnote. Since then, during a slow growth of thousands of years, this human creature had been surely and gradually building up a use and development on the so-called physical side, in an environment in which changes but rarely occurred, and which, when they did occur, were comparatively slow, so that his activity would generally consist of the daily repetition of the same series of acts of which the standard of difficulty remained about the same. But on the so-called mental side, his use and development had been comparatively limited, in an environment where his chief daily effort would consist of hunting down the animals, birds or fish which constituted his daily food supply, an activity for which his instinct was as sure a guide as that of his prey. 
With this relatively high standard of use and development on the physical side, and the associated development of the organism in general, his experience of ill health must have been correspondingly small. But if he ever incurred an illness or met with an injury, there can be little doubt that he would apply as a remedy some specific herb or root which he would know to possess the curative qualities he needed. Footnote. Thus we see that the habit of taking something for an ill had a very early origin. This habit led naturally to the coming of the medicine man, for one of the first channels into which man would direct his developing intelligence would be the discovery of the means of remedying or allaying his physical ills or discomforts. This was bound, sooner or later, to produce men and women who would devote themselves exclusively to the study of such remedies and of the human ills for which the remedies were needed. And a footnote. This act would be a subconscious reaction to the stimulus resulting from the sense of ill-being, in exactly the same way as the act of seeking his daily food was a subconscious reaction to the stimulus resulting from the sense of hunger, and as long as he possessed a mechanical organism which worked with mechanical accuracy, instinctive procedure served his purpose. This specific cure in these circumstances was in keeping with sane and natural requirements. For just as the automatic, slowly developing subconscious process called instinct guided him in his daily life when he was well, so when he was ill, the same mysterious but limiting process would indicate to him the necessary and specific remedy, through the agency of the only part of his organism which was as yet highly developed, namely his sensory appreciation which would mean that in this case his senses of taste and smell would be working in coordination with his stomach and his digestive processes. Footnote. Incidentally, it is interesting here to draw attention to the fact that up to this day the majority of people under similar conditions are dominated more or less by their sensory appreciation, and the practical proof that the sensory appreciation has deteriorated lies in the difficulty, known only too well to workers in the curative sphere, of persuading the patient to give up some particular food or drink which he himself knows has caused and is still causing his illness. The same thing holds good in cases where a doctor recommends some food or drink which he knows will be most beneficial to his patient, but is not pleasing to the patient's sense of taste. In nine cases out of ten, the doctor's advice will be ignored, and even where it is followed, it will probably be only because he has brought considerable pressure to bear upon the patient. This means that the patient will have allowed his reasoning processes to be dominated by his deteriorated sensory appreciation. And a footnote. Thus we see that whether he were well or whether he were ill, the subconscious guidance of instinct was reliable in the practically unchanging routine of his daily life, so that, because of its association with reliable sensory appreciation, man would have no need of recourse to the higher directive processes. Stage 2. Early Civilizing Stage Development of Reasoning Inhibition and the Beginning of the End of the Dominance of Instinct as a Controlling Factor As time went on, Reasoning came more and more to illumine the creature's dull and limited existence, shown by the fact that he began to construct 
rude weapons and to build primitive shelters. This reasoning process was destined to grow and develop through the myriad operations of evolutionary building involved in the new and diverse experiences concerned with this progress towards a higher plane. With every advance and with every change which he made in his environment, he began to put into practice a reasoning inhibition which enabled him, within certain well-defined limits, to master or modify for his own purposes the desires and tendencies of that sensory mechanism upon which, up to that time, he had depended entirely for judgment and direction. The development and use of this reasoning process marked primitive man's differentiation from the lower animals, but it also marked, and this is even more important from the point of view of man's evolutionary history, the beginning of the end of the dominance of instinct as a controlling factor in human activity, so that from that period onwards man could no longer satisfactorily live and move by subconscious guidance alone. Let us see how his newly awakened process of reasoning would work in the new sphere. In the early stages of his emergence from the savage state, any changes which took place in his environment would be but slow and gradual, and the consequent demands upon his newly developing higher directive processes would be correspondingly light. As civilization advanced, however, slowly at first, but with increasing rapidity as time went on, man must have been placed more and more in new and untried situations, which would inevitably demand from him an increasing use of his reasoning processes. This would be exactly the opposite of what had occurred in the earlier savage state, where, as we have seen, conditions had called for a relatively higher development on the so-called physical than on the so-called mental side. It is conceivable, therefore, that the new conditions of civilization would call for a relatively rapid increase in man's use and development on the mental as compared to the physical side. There can also be little doubt that at this stage he had not become dissatisfied with the results of this changing process, and that he continued to receive from within and without more stimuli to mental than to physical activities. The further he progressed from the savage state, the more frequent would become such stimuli, and the more urgent the call on him to deal with new situations, with the result that he would be forced more and more to develop his reasoning processes in the constant inhibition of his natural desires to meet the demands of a young and developing society and to make the necessary adjustments to the complex requirements of an advancing civilization. Man had now arrived at the stage where he had left behind him the environment with which he was familiar and to which his limited experiences had adapted him, and as the pathway of his new experiences inevitably widened out, he was confronted with one of the greatest difficulties experienced in his evolutionary progress on a subconscious basis, namely that of adapting himself quickly to an environment which continued to change with ever-increasing rapidity, and so continually entailed new psychophysical experiences. He did adapt himself, of course, to these new conditions, whilst his sensory appreciation was still more or less reliable, else he could not have survived. But it was only in the same way as he had always adapted himself, 
that is, by trusting blindly to the subconscious guidance of instinct which had served his primitive forefathers in their particular environment. Thus early, it seems, in his civilized career, man presumed subconsciously that he was equipped in every way for any new procedure in life, such as sawing, for instance, plowing, chopping, etc., and even for occupations which, with the progress of time, entailed working more and more in cramped or difficult positions. We may remember, however, that at this early stage, a man had every justification for believing that, if he received either from without or within a stimulus to carry out some new duty, perform some new evolution or adapt some new position in the carrying out of a particular piece of work, he would be able, in all probability, to accomplish this aim with impunity. As far as we can see, nothing as yet had occurred to make him suspect that his sensory appreciation was not reliable, or that his standard of coordination was not satisfactory, or that, in adapting his mechanisms to new activities in a specific way, he might be injuring them in a general way, and thus be paving the way for a general deterioration. In all his activities hitherto, such as, for instance, the hunting and fighting of his savage days, he had been accustomed to rely upon the subconscious guidance of his sensory appreciation, and so it was upon this same guidance in the use of himself that he continued to rely for all the new and varied occupations of civilization. This shows that although he had developed his reasoning process to some extent, in inventing crude weapons, implements, etc., during the early stages of his progress towards the civilized state, he did not apply these reasoning processes to the direction of his psychophysical mechanisms in the use of himself in the various activities of everyday life. With his reasoning processes thus limited in their use, and with no consciousness as yet of any sense of physical shortcoming, it is most unlikely that man could have received even a slight subconscious hint that his instinct would be in any way affected in the new surroundings and amidst the new experiences of civilization, or that he would ever lose a fraction of that satisfactory physical use and development which his race had enjoyed for countless ages, which was then his inheritance, and which he never doubted he was to hand down to his successors for all time. Had he reasoned the matter out, he would have realized that his instinct was built up from very limited experiences. Gains in the uncivilized state where growth was slow and changes rare, so that this instinct could not be expected to meet the demands of a mode of life in which growth was much more rapid and changes more frequent and unforeseen. He would also have realized that many of his instincts were being used less and less in the old way, and consequently were becoming less and less reliable. It would then have been obvious to him that in order to meet satisfactorily the requirements of his new and changing environment, he must employ new guidance and direction, and that in order to build up this new guidance with the rapidity that his necessities demanded, he must call upon reasoning to supersede instinct, the co-worker of slow development, in the use of his psychophysical mechanisms. In other words, he would have realized that his primitive psychophysical equipment must pass from the subconscious to the conscious plane of guidance and direction. 
The centuries passed, bringing with them an increasing scope for the use of man's reasoning processes. Unfortunately, he continued to confine this use of his reasoning processes to the consideration of the relation of cause and effect, means and ends, in connection with his activities in the outside world, both social and physical, and failed to apply this reasoning to the consideration of the relation of cause and effect, means and ends, in connection with the use of his psychophysical organism. At the same time, the use of his so-called physical mechanisms was being gradually but surely interfered with, partly owing to the change from a standard of daily use to one of comparative inactivity, but chiefly owing to the failure of his instincts to meet the demands made upon them by the activities of the new life. The results of the failure of man's instincts to meet the new and varied demands of civilization would not manifest themselves at once. For it is reasonable to suppose that as man emerged from the savage state, his instinct was still working satisfactorily, and that there was little need for curative measures on account of his comparatively high standard of health. Up until then, the so-called physical self, as being more highly developed, had been the guiding and controlling factor in human activity. It is almost beyond human power today to realize that the experiences of millions of years had gone to the building up of this so-called physical development. The experiences man had gained on the so-called mental side were infinitesimal in comparison. Henceforward, this restless, inquisitive creature, endowed with wonderful potentialities and developing on the so-called mental at a far greater rate than on the so-called physical side, continued to progress in the direction of what we call civilization with ever-increasing rapidity. But his race instincts had not equipped him for such a sudden psychophysical rush, such a tremendous overbalancing on the so-called mental side, so that he arrived at the new stage breathless, dazed, at a loss, as it were, from the lack of the graduated psychophysical experiences which had been part and parcel of his earlier growth. Footnote. This indicates, one, that conscious reason psychophysical activity must replace subconscious unreason activity in the processes concerned with making the changes demanded by the ever-changing environment of civilization. Two, that these changes must be made more quickly than heretofore in order to meet this demand satisfactorily, and three, that with the advance of time there will be a corresponding call for quickening in this sphere of psychophysical activity. In short, the fundamental difficulty arises from the following facts. Uncivilized man depended upon subconscious guidance and control, and probably hundreds of years were occupied in making simple changes, for subconscious activity is very slow in its response to the stimulus of the need of change. Civilized man still depends upon subconscious guidance and control, just as he did in the uncivilized state, the tragedy of civilization. But although he has remained satisfied with the form of direction and control by means of which changes have hitheretofore been made, it would seem that he has become dissatisfied with the time occupied with making changes. 
it is man's supreme civilizing blunder that he has failed to realize in practice that an adequate quickening of the response to the stimuli arising from the need for some comparatively rapid change calls for a corresponding quickening of the spheres of direction and control in the use of the psychophysical mechanisms involved, such as is possible only on a plane of constructive conscious control. And a footnote. Stage 3. Later Civilizing Stage Recognition of a Serious Shortcoming Which Was Called Physical Deterioration There came at last a time in the history of man when a number of people became aware of a certain serious shortcoming, and the adoption of physical exercises as a remedy is proof that they recognized this shortcoming as a quote-unquote physical deterioration. This sense of shortcoming and of general lack of well-being was more or less to accompany mankind from that time right on through the different stages of this civilizing process. I write, was to accompany him advisedly, because it has done so. I also write that it should not and would not have done so if man had realized that this sense of shortcoming was the signal that he had reached a psychological moment in his career, and that the time had arrived for him to come into his great inheritance, that is, to pass from the subconscious animal stage of his growth and development to higher and still higher stages of apprehension, conscious reasoning, in connection with the use of his psychophysical mechanisms. Unfortunately, man did not recognize the real significance of this danger signal, for the fact remains that he continued the experiment of guiding himself subconsciously, even though this experiment was already proving a failure, and has since so proved itself with signs unmistakable which he who runs may read. There certainly was some consideration of the position. There was this recognition of a deterioration on the so-called physical side beyond any previously recognized experience of mankind, whilst on the other there may even have been a distinct sense of gain through the increased use and development of the so-called mental processes. But the point I wish to make clear is that where this unequal development was concerned, there had been an inadequate coordinating process at work, a process in fact the very opposite of coordination, and one which has continued, but with few exceptions, in human beings until our own time. Indeed, from its beginning, the process of civilizing tended to widen the scope for so-called mental and to narrow the scope for so-called physical activities, and on a basis of subconscious guidance and control, this process meant for the time being a further development on the so-called mental side, but at the cost of an equally distinct, if more gradual, deterioration on the so-called physical side, with an accompanying deterioration in the standard of sensory appreciation. But it must be remembered that because of the interrelation and interdependence of the mechanisms and potentialities of the organism in the process we call human life, any deterioration on the so-called physical side must in time seriously affect the so-called mental side. Enlargement of the spheres of so-called mental activity does not necessarily denote a growth of healthy mental activity. This has been proved by man's experiences in civilization up to the moment. 
a statement borne out by the events of 1914 to 1919. In fact, the process of civilization has gone hand-in-hand with a harmful interference with those coordinating processes upon which the satisfactory growth of man's psychophysical organism depends. Footnote. Mental growth continued even after a deterioration had been recognized in the physical self, and this deterioration caused, as it were, one limb of the tree to grow at such a pace that it overbalanced the tree, panted too much in one direction, seriously disturbing the roots responsible for its equilibrium and healthy growth. And a footnote. This being so, it follows that from the time that man entered the civilized state, human growth on the subconscious basis was bound to be uneven and unbalanced. And this unbalanced development marked the beginning of a new era in human existence. It marked the beginning of an interference with the coordinated use of his mechanism as a whole, and particularly with those muscular coordinations so essential to his physical well-being. End of section 5